This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of April 25th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We are careening into the month of May here in central Indiana. I have lived all over the country, and I can't think of another region in the United States that blocks off an entire month for a set of community-defining events with such deep history and modern relevance. The climax, of course, is the Indianapolis 500, set this year for May 29th. The GMR Grand Prix, which uses the road course in Indianapolis Motor Speedway, is set for May 14th. And in and around those two dates, we have practices, qualifying, carb day, a mini marathon, a food festival featuring local chefs, and of course, a parade. If you're an IndyCar fan, one of the voices you'll hear the most over the next month is that of broadcaster Kevin Lee. He grew up in Indianapolis, went to Ben Davis High School, got his degree from Ball State, and is still based here, although he's on the road quite a bit covering motorsports for NBC. In May, his weekly motorsports radio show, Trackside, will air daily on The Fan, 93.5 and 107.5 FM. Over nearly 30 years, he has built an impressive resume as a radio host, reporter, and play-by-play guy for the Indianapolis Colts and other NFL broadcasts, the Indiana Pacers and other NBA broadcasts, a wide gamut of college football and basketball games, and of course, IndyCar, NASCAR, and IMSA sports cars. He started covering IndyCar and other IMS events in 2001 for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network, and as I said, is now on camera for NBC, which broadcasts the IndyCar series. As a pit reporter, he is deep in the trenches as the series picks up momentum under relatively new owner Roger Penske. But it turns out Kevin has an especially nuanced understanding of the economics of maintaining a racing team. He is a very hands-on manager of his 19-year-old son's team in the Road to Indy series. Jackson Lee is driving in the Cooper Tires USF 2000 Championship Series, which uses open-wheel cars very similar to what you'd see in IndyCar. Kevin is our guest this week talk about how he built a career in broadcasting largely as a freelancer and to share his front row perspective and in some cases pit row perspective on IndyCar, the Indy 500, and the business of racing. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast sportscaster Kevin Lee. Thank you for making time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Just so we can orient the the audience here, we're recording this on Tuesday, April the 19th. I was interested to know, given your schedule this week, how busy you are today. So first, explain what you're going to be doing tomorrow and Thursday. Uh, Wednesday and Thursday is the open test for the Indianapolis 500. And on the NBC digital platform, Peacock, we cover every time a car moves essentially for official sessions and some testing. And in this case, we cover all of this test. So it's from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Wednesday and 10 to 4 on Thursday. And we're on the air the entire time. There are no commercials. And it's not really our full broadcast crew. So we have four people on Wednesday, two in the booth, 
one in a green room doing interviews and one me on pit lane. And then on Thursday, we lose Lee Diffie because he needs to go to Supercross. So we'll, Marty Snyder will move to the booth to join Townsend Bell, and it'll be me on pit lane or in the, the interview room. And uh, I'm used to long fills uh, from different ventures, and I'm, I'm often known as Radio Kevin because that was my background, and we fill time on radio. Some of the others uh, start getting a little bit surly after three or four hours without a break. So we'll see how it goes, but it's fun. We'll try to relax. We'll try to lay out at times and just listen to the cars because we know people like that. And, you know, hopefully we have good weather and, and start to get a sense of who has an advantage for the 500. Now this is, this is 32 drivers. Is that right? 32 will be taking part in this test. There will be a 33rd. There's still a chance of a 34th, but uh, even if that deal gets done, before testing, they won't have a car for that 33rd. So it's, it's pretty much the entire field. So the track will be busy. What is it exactly they're testing? It's, it's basically practice. So it's okay. practice for the Indianapolis 500. It's a bonus couple of practice days. Now you say that, and, and that actually has been asked by some within the industry, oh, wait a minute, we already have four days of six hours each day of practice before qualifying. And the cars aren't any different from last year. So what are we testing? So that really wasn't a silly question. But the purpose of this is this is the most important race of the year. And everyone's budget and entire year is based around success for the Indianapolis 500. So people want to make sure they're buttoned up. And this also protects you a little bit if, say, we have a day or two of rain in May and time is really shortened. Now they should have a pretty good sense of where they're going to be. So 13 hours of, of just sort of open, lightly organized time to fill sounds terrifying to me. How do you prepare to do that? Or, or have you just sort of downloaded all you need to know in your brain already and you don't need to do anything today to get ready? Yeah, I think you just do it. No, there's things to do. Uh, mostly it's updating a stat pack that I have. And a few years ago, I changed my system when, when I started doing this, like everyone, we would have a notepad and I would, I came from a basketball football background. So I basically would have a roster sheet written down with the 24 cars. If it was a regular race, and then I'd have a few facts and stats and maybe jot down some stories. When I started doing sports car racing in 2019, when NBC picked up IMSA, and my first sports car race was the Rolex 24, and there were 41 cars with four drivers apiece. Obviously, I can't put on one or two sheets all the information. So I went digital, and there's a program called OneNote that a lot of us use where you can just simply push your iPad button. So I, I no longer carry uh, paper or pencil. Everything is digital, either with a, an iPad pencil, or I may kind of use my thumbs and type things in there. And then I can go back and forth, say for a sports car team, I'll have all of their drivers listed under one section. I can go back and get stats from previous races. So that's what I then ad adapted for IndyCar as well. So I'll go through and update sponsor names for the cars. You know, a few numbers have changed. There are obviously new drivers that are Indy 500 only. So I kind of have that in order. And that's my cheat sheet. If before I'm doing a report or an interview, I'll look that up. And so my prep is pretty much 
24-7. It's not 24-7, but just as I see something, as I learn something, I will then input it into my OneNote that I might not use ever, uh, and certainly I might not use for three or four months. But if I see an interesting story that I've read somewhere or just something I see a driver tweet on social media, then I'm putting that in there. And then as I go chat with the drivers, uh, then I will type up notes in there that I can go back and, and reference later on. So that's the same whether it's a practice session or a race. Back to your original question, it's not as intense as a race weekend. Race weekend, we've got seven or eight broadcasters. We've got commercials. It's a one hour and 40 minute race. What you put on the air, especially from pit lane, you need to have kind of buttoned up and be pretty succinct. So there I'm a little bit more organized for something like this. We frankly just kind of wing it. You know, I've been around the sport a long time. Uh, I will just make observations. I'll do interviews and it's just reacting to what's going on. So I want to get back to the track in a second, but first I want to ask you about growing up in Indianapolis. I know you went to Ben Davis high school. Were you born here? I was, I was born in Indianapolis. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, when was the point that you knew you wanted to be in sports broadcasting? Maybe junior high. I had started thinking about it, but probably more likely high school. I would say more junior high because I was obsessed with sports, especially baseball, basketball, and football as well. And, you know, by the time I got to junior high, I knew that I probably wasn't going to make a living at it. I still, I played baseball through high school, but it was to that point, you know, that I, I knew realistically I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. So what else can I do? And the high school had a radio station. So I was on the radio starting as a sophomore in high school. Uh, I was on the JV team and I was doing the play-by-play -play for the varsity baseball team when I was a sophomore. Uh, I was a disc jockey, read the news. And then the next year I started doing basketball and football play-by-play. -play. So I was somewhat ahead of the game uh, by the time I got to college. So that was pretty much always the firm plan. And as I always say, I'm not very good at math or science, so I didn't really have many other options. Did um were you interested as a kid in motorsports? And is that something that came about later? Very casually. Uh, I would say I listened to the Indianapolis 500. It wasn't on television live here and probably watched it some at night. But I recall always listening to the 500 as a kid and enjoying that. But I was not a motorsports uh, fan. I, I Honestly, as a kid, I don't think I knew that they raced any other time than here. <laughs> and I wondered, well, what do they do the rest of the year? And that's so sad for this guy that he's crashed and he won't get to drive the car again for another 12 months. So that was when I was eight, 10 years old, who knows? Yeah. But no, frankly, I was a stick and ball fan and, and I followed it a little bit. So I ended up in motorsports more. So my first internship was with Bob Lamy at WIBC and it started in May and uh, I wanted to intern with Bob because I wanted to work for the Colts and the Pacers and do those kind of things. But it started in May and he said, okay, you're going to the track today. Go get me some interviews. And that's kind of how it started. And I enjoyed it. Uh, and then eventually some opportunities opened up to join the radio network. So that's how I, I got into motorsports broadcasting. But when you're working for WIBC, I, after college, I worked at a little station in Newcastle for a couple of years and did football, basketball, baseball games, everything, uh, but came back to IBC when they got the rights to the Colts and Pacers back in the mid-90s. But in May, it was all hands on deck at the Speedway. 
So that's how I kind of started to learn a little bit more and enjoy it. And then eventually got hired by the radio network to be a turn announcer and then decided, you know what? I enjoy this. I want to do all the races and the path to do that is to move to pit lane. So that's how I ended up on pit lane. And then eventually when NBC took over the, the television rights, uh, someone recommended me or a few people did. And with virtually no television experience, I started working on national television. First time I saw a teleprompter, I was on national television. And I remember them saying, look at the jib. And when we went to break, I asked, what's the jib? Well, that's the big camera on a big hook, you know, that, that kind of moves around over the top of a set. And at that time, when I first started, I was uh, hosting the pre-race show. I would host the pre-race show and then move down to pit lane. And we had like, this was when Versus was on the air, the predecessor to NBCSN. And we had like an hour and a half pre-race. So it was long. So I think that's why I was assigned to that because they knew I could fill time. And, mm -hmm. but we did have a prompter for a little while. The problem was I couldn't see it in the sun and I had to type out everything and that just got to be difficult. So eventually that went away. And then I learned which, which camera the jib was. <laughs> I want to go back to high school just for a second. I interviewed Paul Mendenhall, mm -hmm. uh, former WTTS disc jockey a couple of years ago, about when he was retiring. And he said he was the radio station manager and a teacher for Ben Davis High School for 17 years and that you were one of his big success stories. Paul is one of the key people in my life. So as a kid, Paul worked at WIBC uh, when I was a kid. He was a weekend disc jockey. This is when WIBC played music. It was a full service station. They played music. They had news. They were the home of all of the major sports properties. And Paul was a, a school teacher and managed the high school station at the time, but worked on weekends and oftentimes would work during the week as well as a fill in for Jerry Baker in the afternoon. Uh, and he happened to be the manager of the radio station at Ben Davis. So we developed a good relationship and he was a fantastic mentor. And he's how I ended up with an internship at WIBC. He recommended me and got that in motion. And we still chat every once in a while and have stayed in touch and Paul's the best. He's the best. So we're nearing the end of April. I want to talk about the month of May. First, tell me for the Indianapolis 500 on May 29th, what will you be doing? Are you going to be in the pits full time? Yes. Same thing for the GMR Grand Prix on May 14th at IMS. I'm almost always in the pits unless Lee Diffie is doing something else. So he will have a couple of uh, uh, track and field events. He's the, the number one track and field announcer for NBC Sports. And even in non-Olympic years, he usually has to miss a couple of events. So I, I know I'm doing, I forget which events, but I'm doing a couple of races in the booth later this summer. But generally speaking, I'm on pit lane. I tell you, we, uh, <laughs> we almost fell over. In fact, we pretty much did fall over uh, during the Olympics when suddenly out of nowhere, Lee Diffie is calling the monopod. Oh, right after the Super Bowl. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was, no, it was, a, it was a huge audience. I forget what the number was, but you know, Diff was uh, broadcasting to 60 million people or whatever it was, because it was, it was just a massive audience right after the Super Bowl. They did a short post-game show, and that was by design to keep the audience and bring something. And it was by design, to I think, to have a sport that Diff was calling, mm -hmm. because as, as we like to say, he brings the action. And it went over very well. It was a new event that none of us knew much about, but it was kind of interesting. I'm not sure I want to watch it four days in a row. 
but for 35 minutes, it was great. So are you at the track every day in May? Every day that there's track activity. Um, there's not track activity every day. So <clears throat> there's the uh, road course weekend. We'll be there from Thursday through Sunday. And I'm there a little bit more because my son also races. He's in the road to Indy. So he's racing that weekend. So I'm there just kind of hanging out with him on Thursday. And then the IndyCar weekend is, I guess the IndyCar weekend is only Friday, Saturday. There's nothing on Sunday. And then the 500 practice is Tuesday through Friday, then qualifying. And then, you know, we're there race weekend uh, from what? Thursday through Sunday. What? So wait a second, your son is in the road to Indy. So that's what most of my time is. You ask what I was doing today and, you know, I'd love to just sit and crunch numbers, but mostly I'm working on his program. So that is my side hustle. I manage a junior formula car driver and uh, actively seek the sponsorship that allows him to race. This is fully sponsorship based. These are massively insane budgets and he's, his car looks like an Indy car. It's a couple of steps below. And they go 150 miles per hour and they race before IndyCar races. So he raced at St. Petersburg earlier this year. He'll race at Barber Motorsports Park next weekend. He'll race on the road course at IMS, you know, an hour or so before the IndyCar race. Um, they'll race at Raceway Park on carb night. So most weekends he's with us. Wait, is this, is this Indy Lights or is this something? No, it's called USF 2000. Okay. So it's the second step on the road to Indy. There's a series called USF Juniors, which is fairly soon out of go-karts, then USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000, and Indy Lights. So you're essentially the team owner? No, uh, we, we rent the ride. So I am the team manager. I don't own the equipment. You could. There are a few people that do that, but that's just being clear, you know, the budgets for this are between four and $500,000 a season. Uh, and that's to rent the ride. And so when people ask, what do you do when you don't have a race for two weeks? This is what I do. I manage our sponsorships. I work on finding tickets uh, and organizing hospitality, activation, finding ways to provide a return to our partners and sponsors. Um, but essentially what you do is you, you write a check to the team they provide you a seat and services, and then the car is ours to put whatever stickers and logos on it that we want. And that's really not that much different than a lot of NASCAR, IndyCar, and Formula One programs are. In about half the cases, the driver is required to bring the budget to operate the car. And the goal is that eventually the driver is good enough that he has the leverage that people, the team, will go find the sponsorship and just simply pay him a salary. In the short term, the way this works is a driver will find sponsorship and then essentially to pay his own salary, he then keeps a commission of that sponsorship. So he, had, he collects enough sponsorship to pay the team what they require. In IndyCar, it's, say, depending on the team, an average of around $6 million per season. And the team may not require a full $6 million. They'll have some of their own sponsors, but whatever they're asking for, ideally, a successful driver is finding an extra 500,000 to a million dollars more and he keeps the rest. So there's racing business 101. <laughs> now, did you know all of this before you were called on to do this or did you sort of have to learn this separately? So I, I had a pretty good idea from being in the sport for 20, 25 years, how this works. And that's why I have 
than the more pessimistic one in the household of there's no way we can do this because we don't have this kind of money. More often than not, most racing drivers get started because the family is incredibly wealthy and they could simply write the check or they're wealthy and the dad is a CEO or the mom is a CEO and they have connections and can leverage their business to get their friends and similar levels to help pay for it. I don't know anyone that owns businesses. So ours now I do have a unique advantage that I have a platform and that's what's worked for us. That frankly, a lot of our sponsorships have been people contact me saying I'd like to help. And then I've kind of learned some other things along the way to provide value. And it's mostly about entertaining at the track. And that's the same at the IndyCar level. It's not about the sticker on the car. It's about providing a unique experience that companies cannot buy without the right connections. Uh, for example, Aero on, on the Aero McLaren SP team. None of us are really buying Aero products but they feel very good about what they've invested in this because they bring their key stakeholders to the track and give them a super high level VIP experience. And that leads to more business. I, I've been told this is one of many examples that they are, they are profiting from their partnership. First with Sam Schmidt, now with the McLaren team. So that's kind of what I'm doing on a smaller level is that I have access to the paddock that other junior level programs don't. So I take our partners around, show them a good time, get pictures with the IndyCar drivers. And then even getting the chance to be up close to Jackson's car is still something that's pretty cool. Uh, and I'm in the, the ticket business, you know, trying to find sweet passes and things along those lines. So it's uh, kind of one month at a time, but we've made it this far and we'll see how far we can go. Has this experience given you uh, any more, uh, any better idea or helped improve your reporting at all in your just job as reporting for IndyCar? I don't know that it helps with that. It probably helps with the radio show, just giving me a better insight into the business. Yeah. Motorsport is, and I think fans of motorsport are more interested in the business than say a baseball, basketball, or football fan, because they want to understand why did this driver get this opportunity compared to that driver? It's very simple in baseball, basketball, football. We watch you play and the best person gets the opportunity. It's difficult in motorsport to determine who's the best. For one, the equipment is not all the same. So unless you put them all in the exact same equipment, then you get a pretty good idea. But still, often it's close. So then we're going to choose the driver that's the better public spokesman, that represents our partners better, or that, that brings a budget. And no, I, I do think I've learned considerably more in the, in the last few years I've also heard people notice, especially when I call the Indy Lights races, when someone crashes, they can hear the anguish in my voice because I'm calculating crash damage. Because up until you get to IndyCar, the driver is responsible for crash damage. And it's tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that often ends careers. When you have a big crash in junior formula cars, that's the end because you're not going to be able to pay it. That's incredible. Thanks for clearing that up for me. I have always wondered why are so many of you know the, the brands and sponsors that I see in racing so obscure? Yep. I, I know that NTT Data doesn't expect me to buy NTT Data shoes or whatever or what have you. And I don't mean to pick on them. I mean because they're they're running the whole show. Uh, but there's just so many brands that I'm like, 
this is not a consumer product. So what is it in it for them? The opportunity to use the racing platform to one, entertain their clients and provide unique experiences. And I think the second biggest opportunity is business to business, that they're in the paddock. Their decision makers are in the paddock with other C-level executives and they start to talking and it could be with your team, it could be with another team, but the ones who do it well are linking companies together. The bottom line in making a sponsorship and a partnership work is you've got to figure out a way to either make them money or save them money. You know, and if you can do one of those two things, you are a long way ahead of the game. And then, and then the third opportunity is like I talked about with um, unique experiences that they just can't purchase anywhere else. And then that leads to money, you know, about client retention. You bring in your biggest client and, you know, a football game, uh, you're not standing there for the coin toss. <laughs> if you're a partner with the Indianapolis Colts, you're not standing, you're not running out onto the field with the team. If you're a sponsor of some significance in motorsports, you might be walking from the garage to the grid with the driver or with the team owner. And you're standing next to the car until they start the engines. And then you're going and standing. Basically, you're standing behind the head coach and you're wearing the headset for the coach to quarterback communication. That's the opportunity that a sponsor has in motorsport. And a lot of people come away with, wow, what do I need to do to make sure this continues? Or what do I need to do to make sure that I'm invited back next year? And that's how it becomes worth the investment. And that's the same on your son's level as well. Exactly. That's how we've made it work. You know, it, it's, it's not about if you, if you tried to say, well, here's how many people are watching the races on YouTube or going to be at the track during these races. There's no way you can provide enough of a return for that. So it's these other opportunities. Right. We have more of a chance to provide some return because I have a small social media following, but it's larger than most junior formula dads. And then we just have some unique connections that we can use to our advantage too. So that's, there, there's a few of us that are doing that way, that don't have the money to pay for it, that have found ways to have other people pay for it. And it helps if the driver is likable and everyone that's met my kid for some reason seems to like them and they want to help. Let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. Okay, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast in my conversation with motorsports broadcaster, Kevin Lee. From your perspective, uh, over the last couple of years, how has IndyCar changed under the ownership of uh, Roger Penske? I, mean, I know it's, it's a pretty fraught subject matter because he's obviously incredibly powerful, but can you speak a bit to his stewardship of the series so far? I don't know that we've fully seen what that's going to mean because of COVID. Uh, 2020, we all felt fortunate that Roger Penske's empire and wealth was vast enough that he could take a massive loss and we continued to go to work most of the year. 
Uh, most other sports weren't operating and he had to lose tens of millions of dollars and help subsidize the sport. Even last year was still not quite normal. This, this sport is based on sponsorship. And I know of many deals that fell apart because as we talked about earlier, it's about activation and sponsors were saying, well, we'd be in, but if we can't bring our people to the track because we have a no travel rule right now, then no, I'm sorry, it's done. I know of several major, major primary sponsorship deals that have ended because they couldn't activate. They didn't care about the sticker on the car. They wanted to be able to bring people to the track and they couldn't do it. So I still think we're in the process of that. But in general terms, uh, I, I think just the association has helped from a business perspective. You're getting, I'm sure teams are getting more people returning their calls when they're talking about sponsorship and partnership opportunities. Uh, you're seeing things that wouldn't have happened before. I don't think IndyCar and NASCAR would have raced on the same weekend at IMS um, without Roger Penske pushing that along. And that doesn't make sense. I don't know why they wouldn't listen to Tony George and the Holman George family in the same manner. But when Roger Penske asks for something, it's a good idea to listen because he's really smart and he probably has a, a good reason for doing something. So I, I think it's still to come, but it, it's not going to be that there's going to be an immediate turnaround, but it's just going to slowly continue to rise. The new television contract is very good for IndyCar getting 14 races on network television. Does that happen if Roger Penske is not in charge? Maybe, maybe not. But lots of little things like that. NTT re-signed within the time that he's returned. Do they re-sign if he's not there? I don't know. Uh, but I think there's still more big things to come with, mm -hmm. with Roger and his family involved. Okay. Before we wrap things up, I did want to ask you about Bob Jenkins, uh, one of the guys who has been considered the voices of the, of the 500. You must have known him pretty well uh, from your radio days. Um, or am I wrong? Did you uh, know Bob? No, I knew him very well. I worked with him. Yeah. On TV and never worked with him on radio. Uh, but, but he was the person that sort of gave me the idea to join the IMS radio network. So when I had started at WIBC, so I guess this would have been in the winter of 95, 96, uh, and I had a voicemail on my office message system from Bob Jenkins, who I did not know. Uh, and I don't think I had ever met and asking if I'd like to interview for a job for the Indy 500 on the IMS radio network. And of course I said, sure. And I went down and visited with him and I since learned it's probably not a good idea to be super honest in job interviews because one of the questions was, so are you a big race fan? Have you followed the 500 your entire life? And my answer was no, not really. Um, but I can figure it out. You know, how much do you know about racing? I know a little bit, but not a lot, but I'll learn it. And his response was, okay, we'll get back to you. And I think Bob had been given my name probably by either Donald Davidson, uh, who I'd worked with a lot during my internship and had gotten to know or from Bob Laney. Uh, and that's how I got on the list. So I didn't get the job that year. But then I started thinking about it and thinking, hey, here's an opportunity and started paying a little bit more attention. And I would say in, I guess it was in 2001. So the next few years, I didn't even try to get a job on the 500 because my primary beat at that time of the year was the Pacers. 
and they were making deep runs into the playoffs every year. And I was busy in May and I really didn't spend a ton of time at the track. So after Larry Bird had left in 2000 in Isaiah Thomas's first year, I didn't think things were going to go very well, or there was going to be a long playoff run. It was a, a, a bit of a struggling year. So I called IMS radio and said, Hey, I'm going to be available this May if you need somebody. And they said, okay, you're hired. And that's all it was. Um, so eventually, so Bob was on television by that time. Uh, eventually when I moved to TV first in 09, my first TV assignment was filling in for Jack Aroot for a couple of races. Bob was the anchor on versus. And then when I joined full time in, in 2011, Bob was still the anchor. So we worked side by side for a couple of years and had worked on the public address as well. So Bob was a very, very good friend and we miss him dearly. Is there anything in particular that you learned about broadcasting or just calling the race from Bob? Well, I always admired, he, he sounded like an anchor. He just sounded like an anchor and, and he was in control, didn't let his emotions get the best of him, but still would show energy and enthusiasm. I always thought he was fair with any kind of incident, never threw anyone under the bus, hugely respected. Um, I think mostly I, I would have just watched and listened to how he did things. And his style is different than mine. I'm probably a little bit more animated and a little more high energy, but I would say I take a little bit of, of something from almost everyone, whether it's him or Paul Page or Lee Diffie or Mike King, who was the, the radio anchor for many years. And when I first started, and I'm kind of a mix of all of those guys. Forgive me for asking, how old are you? 51. Okay. I try to keep that quiet. <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually that works against you. Yeah. Where do you want your career to go from here? Are you happy with the way things are working right now? Or is there still another chapter that you want to get underway? Uh, I mostly want to stay employed and work for another 15 years plus or so. You know, I think everyone would say I'd, I'd love to, to call Sunday night football or be the lead anchor. And that's great, but I'm pretty conservative. Uh, I've probably exceeded what I realistically thought. You know, when I first got into this, my goal was to work at WIBC. And if I did that for the rest of my life, did a talk show, whatever, uh, I'd be completely happy. You know, my honest first goals were I wanted to be the voice of the Pacers or the voice of the Colts. And I'd still be interested in something like that. But, you know, frankly, what I'm doing right now is probably a better job when you consider the amount of time I have off compared to what the pay scale is. Uh, doing, doing an NBA job is a grind. And doing the NFL is not just the games. It's going to the complex every day and doing things along with that. And I'd still love to do that. Those were the dream scenarios, but life took a little twist and I'm quite happy with the way it worked out. I, I do love the opportunity to be able to explore and do other things. I still get a chance to call a few college basketball games a year. I have the ability if something opened up. I've done NFL games for Westwood One in the past. They don't have an afternoon package right now. If that ever came back, I'd love to do that again. But I can't really do a team NFL gig and keep doing what I'm doing for NBC. There are three or four or five conflicts in the summer and the fall, and it just doesn't work. So if I did what I'm doing right now, and lasted another 15 years, I'd sign up for that right now. Um, I'm perfectly happy with that. If something else 
develops, great, but I'm quite content with where I'm at. Well, and as you mentioned, you have a really significant side gig right now. That doesn't pay well, though. That just keeps <laughs> me from paying the budget. So that's just about survival. It, maybe it will lead to another career at some point. Maybe I'll manage other drivers if he's able to continue for a couple of more years and I gather more intel that will help other people. But mostly it's about you know trying to get him to the next level and then we'll figure that out as we go along. Right. But it definitely keeps me out of trouble. Well, uh, hey, I have taken up too much of your time. Thank you so much. Brian Wisdom here. You've you've answered a lot of questions that I've had as an IndyCar uh, spectator. I'm happy to help, Mason. It's nice to visit with you. My thanks again to Kevin Lee. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest print edition of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. The global market for nuclear medicine is expected to quintuple in about a decade, and a large slice of that growth is expected to occur in the Indianapolis area. John Russell reports that Telex Pharmaceuticals, which has developed an imaging agent that makes cancer cells light up in scans, is having a breakout moment. Also in this week's issue, Susan Orr unravels the story of a fisher's man facing a tangle of legal issues related to accusations he was involved in the nationwide sale of more than $230 million in questionable financial products. And Daniel Bradley reports that interest is accelerating in Zionsville's slow-to-develop Creekside Corporate Park now that construction of the new Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing Team headquarters is well underway. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is quite a bit easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. It works out to about $2 per week for actionable information you're not going to find anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast, which is edited by Leslie Weidenbenner. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.